Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. Why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter number two is where we're going to be today as we get back in this series after a few weeks away. Now, I want to remind us just at the very beginning about the structure and the outline of Revelation. So all the way back in our first message from Revelation chapter one, we talked about how the book of Revelation is divided up in several different sections. Now, Revelation chapter one, verse 19 is the verse that we use to give us that. And I've got it here in the screen uh, and you don't have to look at it or uh, you don't have to memorize it or anything at all, but it's a good verse to have in your mind just to know uh, that there is an actual specific division of how the book is laid out. I wanna talk you through that real quickly. If you remember chapter number one, uh, Jesus, uh, when he was revealing this to John, he said that chapter one was the thing, the things that were seen. Remember, he said, I want you to write down the things which are seen, the things which are, and then the things which are coming. And it's a very easy division of the book. So chapter one is the things that he was seeing. And of course, the description of the risen savior and glorified Christ, that was a, an awesome, awesome uh, description of Jesus and what he's like in that situation. And then chapters two and three are the things of which are, which of course are the seven churches of Asia Minor, which we're gonna cover and continue in that today. But then chapters 4 through 22 describe for us the things which are coming or the things which are to come. Now, like I mentioned, right now what we're looking at is the seven churches in Asia Minor. And I've got a map here that illustrates for you and you can see them. We've talked already about a couple of them. Now, now just so you know, there were more than seven churches in that region. We understand that. There was more than seven, but for whatever reason, God chose to point out these seven different churches and highlight them and the unique challenges that they were facing. Now, these are specific. These are real churches, of course. Of course. But each one of these sections, each one of these aspects of, of churches that God is talking about does carry for us today real-world application. It carries for us today specifically warnings for churches even in 2021. Now, the first church that we covered was the church in Ephesus. You can see it here on the map is right down here. Uh, of course, we know John was in the Isle of Patmos, which was down a little bit lower than that. It's kind of off the map, actually. And the first church that he talked about was the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus was an admirable church. I mean, they were, uh, they were so fantastic in the areas of exposing um, wrong doctrines, false teachings. They held on to truth. Uh, and, and they really were a, a church that we would call maybe a model church for us to follow, but they had one issue. They had one issue that God brought out. And the issue was, is that they had left their first love. What did that mean? That meant that they had left the things, uh, they had left what God had called them to do, the things that made them a respectable church in the first place. They had moved away from it. So God said, I need you to repent. I need you to return and get back to that first thing. And there's such great application for us as individuals uh, through that story of the church of Ephesus. But then we moved on to the church at Smyrna. Now the church at Smyrna was the persecuted church. Uh, they were a church that uh, was really known and endured great suffering and difficulty. Uh, and yet they still had a faithful witness. Even though Satan was actively bringing persecution to them, even though uh, the Jews that were in the city were also persecuting them, there was imprisonment, there was so many different challenges. And yet through it all, we see this church that endured, that continued on even despite all of the challenges uh, that were around them. And it was a difficult, difficult place 
to be a Christian. But what we saw at the very end of the chapter is how God laid out for us how he sees and rewards the faithfulness of his children. Because even though this church was persecuted, they were not abandoned. And that's something that we need to remember. They were not uh, abandoned at all. Now, here's what I want us to get just real quickly. And help me narrow in on this thought right here. When it comes to uh, Satan, our adversary, uh, when it comes to him um, and his attacks towards us, I want you to recognize that blatant persecution, the open oppression of his church was something that he uh, obviously was the first option for him. You call that option A for Satan. If he's going to try to destroy the church, I'm going to go after them and I'm going to be open about it. I'm going to attack them openly. However, I want you to know it was not the only weapon that Satan had against the church. Sure, it was his first choice. It was option A for him is to just oppress and bring uh, physical persecution and difficulties to the church. But as we see in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 12, where we're going to be today in just a few minutes, we not only see him bringing open persecution, but a new attack from Satan is revealed towards the church. This is something uh, that so thus far we haven't heard too much about, but it's something that continues on even to this day. It's not something that was new to Christianity, but maybe for the very first time, it really took effect and really made a difference in the church that we're going to talk about today, the church in Pergamos. And so why don't we do this right at the very beginning, though? Let's read our passage together. And so we'll read together Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Hi, church family. Our passage for today is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a, tump, a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, save he that receiveth it. Thank you for that, Nisley, and uh, what a... It's been really great for me to have different people reading the passages as we work our way through the book of Revelation. All right, well, we're talking about the city or the church in Pergamos. So let's talk about Pergamos here for just a moment. Now, Pergamos was a city that today is actually in ruins, but it was a very important and prosperous city during this time. It was about 115 kilometers north of Smyrna, about 24 kilometers inland from the Aegean Sea. And along with the cities of Smyrna and Ephesus that we've already talked about, Pergamos comp uh, really competed with them to be considered one of the top cities, and they really desired to achieve recognition and fame for their city. 
Now, Smyrna, as we've talked about, was a commercial center. A lot of business was done there. Ephesus was a political uh, city known for all of the politics uh, that happened there. But Pergamos was considered the religious center of the area. It was known for uh, the temples and the uh, houses of worship that were all, uh, all throughout the city. But as well, it was noted for something interesting, which was that it had a medical library of some 200,000 scrolls and volumes. It was second only to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. It's interesting to note as well that here in Pergamos, they were the people who invented the process of developing um, parchment as a writing material. Parchment, of course, being stretched and thinned out animal skins. Now, there's an interesting story behind that. The reason that they had to develop it was because they tried to poach the main librarian from Alexandria. And when the people in Egypt found out that they had tried to take their main librarian from their library to the second library, what they did is they stopped all shipments of papyrus from Egypt to uh, the city of Pergamos. And so then they had to basically develop this new technology. And uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, fact about it. But primarily, like I mentioned, primarily, this was a city that was known for their pagan idolatry and pagan worship. Much of the city, like many ancient cities, were built on the top of a thousand foot acropolis. Now, we've talked about this before, but most cities had the highest point, and that's where they would put their temples or, uh, or, or, or castles or whatever. They would put, put whatever it was important to them up on this acropolis. And here in Pergamos, they had one that was over a thousand feet, three, over 300 meters high. And there they had all of these temples and these centers that were dedicated to worship. I'm going to move quickly and share a few of those uh, just so you can understand a little bit about what was on there. Uh, first of all, they had a temple to Caesar Augustus. Emperor worship was alive and well there in the city of Pergamos. Um, in fact, most people in their businesses burned incense to the emperor every single day as a show of loyalty to them. There was a temple to Athena, and uh, she was worshipped there in a, in a temple. There was a temple to Zeus, which in fact was the largest at that point, the largest ever altar constructed to a god like that ever or anywhere in the world. It was absolutely uh, massive. It was right next to Caesar Augustus Palace, where, by the way, he would summer here in this city. And then there was uh, Escapolius, which was the god of healing. This was a very prominent god in Pergamos. We would recognize it uh, as, as, a, a, um, as a statue that had a snake, a non-poisonous snake wrapped around a pole. Of course, today we see that as uh, sort of the symbolism for medical, uh, for the medical field and the medical profession. And for them, it was a false god of healing. And they had a very interesting uh, temple there. But the point I want us to get is that Pergamos was a pagan city. It was an unholy city. It was filled with and this is hard for us to understand, because when you think of religion, you think of morality, you think of uh, proper things. But there in Pergamos, the fact was, it was filled with immorality, it was filled with wickedness, and of course, false worship. So it was in this city, it was in this city, surrounded on all sides by uh, pagan gods and by pagan worship, that we see Jesus begin to speak to the church there in Pergamos. And he begins with a, common, uh, a commendation. So point number one today, I want you to see a commendation or the commendation from Jesus to the church. Look at verse number 12. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp, uh, sharp sword with two edges. Now, who is this? This is Jesus, of course. We know from Revelation 1, verse 16, he's described as standing in the middle of the golden candlesticks. Of course, those represent the seven churches. He's holding the seven stars. That's the uh, messengers uh, or angels to those churches. Of course, it's dealing with the pastors, the leadership of those churches. And so he says here that I am writing to them 
The one who's got the short, uh, uh, sharp sword with two edges, that is Jesus Christ. We know that as a description of the word of God. And then in verse number 13, he says this. He says, I know thy works. I know thy works. That word know means he fully understands the things that they have been doing. And he says, where thou dwellest, that's Pergamos, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Now, there's two things there I want you to notice real quickly, and you probably see it immediately. I thought we were talking about a church, right? I thought we were talking about a church in the city of Pergamos, and right away we see a Satan being talked about twice. You see how it mentions there, he says, Satan's seat uh, and Satan's, uh, where Satan is dwelling. Now, this is really interesting here in verse number 13 because we see the enemy of God, the enemy of righteousness mentioned as having his seat. That means his throne. Having his throne in this city of Pergamos. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why that uh, might have been said. It could have been a literal statement, meaning we know Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot just go. Uh, he's not everywhere at once. And so he could very possibly have um, taken up residence in that area for that time. We, we don't know that for sure. There's other reasons that people think uh, maybe because of that, like I mentioned, the altar of Zeus, of course, that uh, he it was this huge, uh, it looked like a huge throne and seat to him. That might have been a, a reason that people could, or that Jesus connected it to the city in that way. Um, another, other, another thing is that people uh, connect Satan's throne with the worship of the God uh, Asclepios, which like I mentioned before, and I've got an image of, of that God, like I mentioned, and you can see it there. That's the, uh, the God, and he's got this uh, snake uh, wrapped around. He was the God of healing, and, uh, and he was the, uh, the God that people came all over the natural world at that point. They came to be a part of this temple and to worship in this way. He was depicted as a snake, a non-venomous snake, and what they did in the temple is that the temple floor was literally covered with these snakes. And people would come from all over and they would lay on the floor hoping that the snakes would come up and touch them and which they believe that that was a symbol of, or that they then would be healed at that point. But of course, for the Christians in the city, you got to think about a temple filled with snakes, <laughs> uh, promising for, uh, fulfillment, promising healing. You can understand why if Jesus said the seed of Satan, the throne of Satan is there, they would, oh yeah, that old serpent, we know exactly what you're talking about. We know, of course, emperor worship was a problem. This statement could be understood as the fact that they were under the God of this world, uh, representing Satan, not the God, uh, the, the one true God. A lot of blasphemy that was going on there against uh, the one true God. But any one of these reasons could, I, could be used to identify why he called it Satan's dwelling and the seat of, of, uh, of where Satan was. But regardless of the description or why God used that description, what we understand is that it was a difficult and it was a very, very wicked place. And this is where believers lived. This is where people who understood the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and had placed their faith and trust in him and had a calling to share that gospel with others, they lived in this difficult place. And God gives them a, a, a commendation here. He says that they uh, held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny the faith. They did not deviate from being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ or the central truths, even in a wicked place like Pergamos. Uh, they exemplified the truth, I believe, of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think that's a perfect verse to describe what was happening in Pergamos, that even though they're in this wicked place, the seat of Satan, uh, the church still continued on. And for us, church, this is such a great reminder that satanic uh, opposition 
cannot destroy true saving faith. I want you to understand that. Though we have an adversary who's doing everything he can to come against us, he cannot destroy what God is trying to do because our God is greater than any evil in this world. And because of that, guess what? We can be faithful then to that. Back in verse number 13, I want you to notice, he says, you've held fast my name, you've not denied my faith. And then he talks about even in those days. Now, this is interesting. He says, you held on to the faith even uh, in the days where Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. This church maintained their faithfulness even though this member that is mentioned here was killed for his faith. And notice how Jesus described him as a faithful martyr. Here it's translated martyr. Earlier on in Revelation, it's translated witness. This is just as interesting. Jesus says that Antipas was his faithful witness, the faithful martyr. It's actually a term that Jesus used to describe himself. Revelation 1, uh, 6, uh, verse 5, and also in Revelation 3, verse 14, we'll see it again coming up. He used that same term that he used to describe himself to describe what Antipas had gone through. And Antipas was somebody who had paid the ultimate price in his refusal to surrender to the evil society that he was in. Now, we don't know anything else about Antipas except for this uh, part of the text right here. More than likely, he was one of the leaders there of the local church. According to tradition, he was actually roasted alive in a metal uh, brass or in a brass uh, bull that they built a fire underneath and they put him inside and he was roasted alive inside of that during persecution that was instigated by Emperor Domitian. We know for sure that he was not the last one to be killed for his faith, but here we see Jesus finding him worthy to commend him as an example of somebody who held fast to the faith of the name of Jesus Christ. He did not deny the faith. And he is one of many from uh, all of Christian history that we see. He is one of many that have been willing to uh, stand up for their faith and have often given their lives to avoid denying the faith and walking according to this, this world. Just this week on April the 9th, it was the 76th anniversary since the murder of a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I've mentioned him before and uh, told stories about him before, but he was a Christian theologian and pastor uh, who was arrested, uh, who was put in a concentration camp, and then ultimately he was hanged for his stance against the Nazi regime. Specifically, he spoke out against their euthanasia policies and, of course, the genocide against the Jews. And he spoke out very openly about it, and he paid for it with his life. You know, that was a time in world history, and especially in Germany, where many of the clergy and, of course, the majority of the society had fallen right into the evil of Nazi Germany. But here was somebody who recognized it as wrong and sinful, and so he stood up against it. He stood for what was right. He stood for the truth, and he paid for it with his life. This week, I was reading on the persecution of the church in uh, the Soviet Union during the uh, early parts of the 1900s, honestly, right up until the 80s. They estimate that some 60,000 clergy gave their lives uh, for the cause at that time during great persecution and the push of of atheism there in, in that country. And, you know, we could take the rest of the day to share story after story after story from history of how many uh, people have stood for Christ in the most wicked of societies. But the thing I want us to focus on is that while we read these stories and we have a hard time putting ourselves in that position, of course, what it does do for us is that it can give us hope in the uncertain days that we live in today. That we would also have the same stance. We have to remember these men like Antipas and, and, and Dietrich and all these others that we read about, they were flesh just like us. They were human just like us. 
And if God through his spirit can give them the strength to stand for what is right, all the way up to it costing them their life, surely God can do that for us. I know for me, and maybe some of you are thinking right now, there's no way. I'd, I, I'd, take, the, I'd take the mark and I, <laughs> I'd do whatever I could to avoid losing my life. And you say, I don't have the strength to stand for God uh, in that way. I believe that's why Ephesians challenges us in Ephesians 6.13 to take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Here's the thing, church. God has given us all the protection. He's given us all the strength that we need to stand like these people, to stand like Antipas, who I'm sure when he arrived in heaven, God said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We have that same strength. We have that same power within us. We are armed with the same protection as those, and we can take a stand for Christ. It may not be costing you your life right now. It may cost you a friend. It may cost you some other thing in your life, but certainly, church, we can stand. It is in our DNA as Christians to stand up for the right things, to stand up against the evils of this world. And Jesus here commended the church for their stand. Specifically, he highlights Antipas's faithfulness and his courage. And I believe the reason God did that was as a way to challenge the church there, to encourage the church. But as we're going to see as the passage goes on, I believe Jesus highlighted Antipas and the fact that he stood against evil. I believe he highlighted it to also uh, challenge those and to maybe even rebuke the church in Pergamos. Because as we'll see, many of them gave in to the temptation to compromise themselves. So here we come to point number two, though. We see the concern. First, there was the condom, uh, uh, commendation. I keep saying condemnation. I'm sorry. It's not, it's not it at all. It's the commendation. commendation. And uh, now we see the concern of Jesus Christ. Look at me at verse number 14. He says, but I have a few things against thee. Oh man, that right there should cause us to take pause, right? Because thou hast there, he's talking about the church, there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Wow. You know, Jesus gives them a commendation there, but he also had some concerns about the overall health of the church. Sure, there were some that were standing for what was right, but there were others among them, people that had infiltrated the church that held to some false doctrines. And he mentions here two different doctrines. And the reason Jesus mentioned them, because if if this was left unchecked, if it was not confronted, if it was not challenged, it had the ability and the potential to actually destroy the church from within. Now, this is the backup plan of Satan that I was mentioning earlier on. This is his second mode of operation, the second way that he uh, goes after the church. Because here's the thing, what Satan cannot intimidate, he then will infiltrate. What Satan cannot intimidate, he will infiltrate. Now, history has showed us that the church was not intimidated by that physical uh, oppression and that physical persecution that they are under. And so what does Satan do? Now he begins to infiltrate them from the inside. And in this case, false doctrine was the vehicle of his infiltration, specifically the doctrine of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Now, you might be thinking, what is the big deal at this point? What is the big deal if people in the church hold different doctrines or have different teachings that they believe. If we all believe in Jesus Christ, isn't it essentially the same thing? Like who cares about all this other stuff? As long as we believe Jesus is the Lord, uh, then we should all be good. I I want to challenge you with that kind of thinking right now, because the fact is the scripture warns us 
against having an apathetic attitude towards doctrine. Now, doctrine is teachings, right? The teachings of the Word of God. And we are warned strongly to be careful about being apathetic towards it. I want to share a few verses with you. Titus 1.9 tells us to holding fast the faithful Word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine. Now, the word sound there means healthy, good health. And doctrine, of course, is teachings. So that by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. That talks about how doctrine has an influence on people's lives. Titus chapter two, verse number one, we're encouraged. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. There's the same thing. That's what we should be speaking is true doctrine. Second Timothy chapter four, verse number two, uh, every pastor's favorite verse, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And I know people, you look at it and you say, oh yeah, pastors love this verse because it says rebuke in there. And it says, then it says uh, uh, reprove. Uh, I want you to show you the hardest part with long suffering <laughs> and doctrine though. Notice that he says, for the time will come when they, that's speaking of the church, the listeners, will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. It's a great way to illustrate. They just want somebody to tickle their ears. I want somebody to say things to me that make me feel good about myself. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Listen, 2,000 years ago, church family, God placed an emphasis on having the right doctrine in the church body. He says, you've got to have the right teachings, doctrine that is biblical, doctrine that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, there are areas of methodology and practice and things that we have uh, different opinions on and we have flexibility within it. But when it comes to the doctrine that the church teaches, there is not any flexibility. We need to stay true to what the word of God says here. Now, the Nicolaitans that were introduced here, they were uh, people that were astraying away from it. Now, we don't know a whole lot about them. History and other uh, historical sources uh, uh, talk and mention that possibly they came from Nicholas, who was one of those seven deacons that was chosen in Acts chapter number six. Whether or not he became apostate or whether it was his followers that uh, changed things around, we don't really know that for sure, but his teachings certainly were corrupted. And what they did is they abused the privilege of Christian liberty and they added into the church and added into their faith extreme immorality and wicked practices that should not be a part of anyone's life, and yet they added it into the faith and said, oh, this is perfectly acceptable. Now, interestingly enough about the name Nicolaitans, it means to rule the people. And essentially what they taught was then what is referred to here in the passage as the doctrine of Balaam. Now, this is kind of interesting here. Nicolaitans means to rule the people. And basically what they taught was the doctrine of Balaam. We'll cover that in a second. The Hebrew name Balaam means Lord of the people. Very interesting there, you see the two, it's, it's almost there are two synonymous names here that are connected. And essentially what God is describing here is a group of people who lorded over others, meaning they told others, you don't know what you're talking about. We know what's right. You need to listen to us. And this is what we're telling you to do. And of course, they were leading them astray into immorality. Now, we need to understand the story of Balaam if we're going to get a full picture of all of this. And so uh, Balaam is covered in Numbers 22, verse 25. And this image that I've got here for some of you will, uh, will bring back memories of maybe Sunday school as a kid. And you've got the angel and you've got Balaam and he's on a donkey and there's others there. And the full story is in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. And I'd encourage you maybe to go back and look it up. But I'm just going to give you a really quick overview of who Balaam was. So Balaam 
was a true prophet. He really was. And the problem with Balaam, though, is he had a problem with women and with money. Those are his two big problems in his life. What do you know? It continues to this day. But what he did is he actually would make money off of his prophecies. And so he was hired by the Moabite king named Balak. We see that mentioned there in Revelation chapter two as well. And so he was hired by Balak to come. And the reason the Moabite king hired him was to come and to curse Israel. Israel was encamped there close to Moabite and uh, the Mo- by Moab there. And he said, I want you to come and I want you to curse them. Well, interesting, as he went to curse them, God kept bringing things into his way to slow him down from going there. Uh, eventually, God used a talking donkey. Yes, incredible story. You need to check that out uh, to, to uh, rebuke him. And in fact, when it came to that point where he stood uh, over the people and he was going to bless them, God turned the blessing of uh, the curse into a blessing. God turned the curses into blessings. But here's the end of the story. The king, Balak, still got his money's worth out of it. You say, how? Well, because Balaam could not curse the people, God would not allow him to. God always stopped him or changed it into a blessing. Balaam eventually gave Balak some advice. And the advice was that you need to go down there. You need to make friends with the Israelites You need to invite them to worship with you and to feast with you at your own altars. It's the old adage, if you can't beat them, join them. And that was the advice that Balaam, okay, we're talking about the doctrine of Balaam, the advice of Balaam to Balak, you need to go in and infiltrate the children of Israel. Now, Israel at the time did not, well, they responded very friendly to them. In fact, we know from the passage that the, that the men in particular uh, were taken away and swayed by the women of Moab to go, and this was a whole plan for them to go, and they began to eat uh, uh, meat that had been uh, offered up to false gods and idols, which was against what they were to do. Uh, they then as well began to uh, be involved in sexual sin and fornication with the Moabite women. Some of them even married some of them, and then became a part of these heathen religious rites. And when God brought judgment to Israel for that sin, 24,000 people died under his judgment because uh, they were disobedient and they compromised and they disobeyed God's law. You say, so what does this ancient history have to do with the church here in Pergamos? Well, it has a lot to do because God mentioned it, first of all. But secondly, it gives us an idea, a clue as to what was happening in the church. Here's what we believe was happening. The fact is that there was a group of people who decided that there was nothing wrong with them being Christians and being a friend to Rome. There was nothing wrong with them being Christians and being connected in with the pagan worship and the activities of the day and of that area. That decision that they would have had would have led them to having thoughts to things like, well, what's what's wrong with me as a believer? Uh, What's wrong with me believing in Jesus and offering up incense as a way to honor, you know, I want to honor the uh, 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 Caesar? Uh, Why why not allow allow some uh, societal practices to be done within the church or Hey, if uh, you know all my friends do it and everybody at work does it, uh, it's not going to harm me. I can handle it. And they had this mentality that I can connect and they could connect those two things together, the pagan worship and then also being a Christian. And this is an age old practice of Satan, which is finding ways to join up wickedness and evil and sin to join it up with the people of God by any means, me- uh, means necessary. And he does it because he is trying to uh, uh, limit our effectiveness. He's trying to corrupt us from within. This is why, again, we take doctrine so seriously, why we do all that we can to not allow anyone or anything to get us off course. That is why we as Christians 
must stand for truth even uh, when our society is trying to propagate uh, all sorts of crazy things. We need to stand for truth and do what is right. There is a cost, though, for that. Uh, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier on. He wrote a book that was called, notably, The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he made a statement that was so powerful. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls somebody, he bids them to come and die. What does that mean? It means when we are called as believers, we are called to a life of, of, of possible and difficult suffering. Antipas, of course, we know refused to compromise and he was martyred for it. But what we understand is that others in the church took the easy way out and cooperated with the society. Now, sadly, church, we live in a day today where churches can very easily give in to the same temptation. It's not as overt as eating food worship to idols or blatant or open immorality within a church body. It is much more covert. It is much more subtle. The temptation to do things like allow aspects of the world into our church in order to try to connect with maybe the outside world in a better or an easier way. And even though it sounds good, right? It sounds like a good thought. Oh, yeah, let's, let's add this in and maybe more people will then come to church. Uh, There's a temptation, of course, to tolerate divisive doctrines, uh, to minimize uh, important doctrines for the sake of unity or for some sort of broader idea, which I would say is a false uh, unity. Uh, Maybe it's just having a welcoming spirit to some of the sinful practices of the world in order to appear attractive to the world. I've met people who like that. I live in this way. I do certain things that are sinful in order to bring me close to uh, people who don't know Jesus. But I want to tell you, just as Jesus said to the church in Pergamos, that is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus hates that doctrine. Jesus, he does not hate the person, but he hates the doctrine. He hates the sin of the Nicolaitans, which is, I'm going to do this sin. I'm going to allow this into my life for some false purpose. Maybe for some of you, you found yourself slipping into some of those same thought processes, Where you find yourself thinking that, you know what, uh, the way it manifests itself personally is, you know, I can live like this. I can live like my coworkers. I can live in this uh, sinful way and still be a Christian. You know, our human, our human thought process kicks in and says, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm I'm covered under the blood, you know, and and so I'm going to just go ahead and do this thing. And I know that Jesus is going to forgive me for doing this, even though the Bible is very clear that this is this is wrong. It's a sin against God and maybe a sin against my conscience. Maybe you found yourself uh, trying to fit a godlessness uh, and maybe an anti-scriptural worldview into your own idea of what Christianity should be. Many people are doing this right now where they're trying to take the philosophy of the world and they're trying to connect it into Christianity and trying to make the two things come together. Maybe yourself are putting yourself in the place of God and you're deciding what is acceptable. You're deciding what should be promoted. To this, I would answer with Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Paul says there was a group of people that were sinning and they were just sinning all the time because they're like, oh wow, look at the amazing grace of God's forgiveness of my terrible sin. And so they would sin again and they're doing it purposely. And so that's why Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, okay? We do not sin so that grace may abound. Grace has prevented us and grace gives us the strength to not sin. Yes, we are forgiven people, but there still are consequences to uh, sin. There's still consequences to the sins of our heart and sins of our mind even. 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 reminds us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's the law of sowing and reaping. It's the idea that if we live a life of sin, there are going to be consequences for that sin. And the church in Pergamos had lost its ability to say no to those outside influences. I don't believe that the majority of the people that were there were necessarily involved in some of these horrible errors that we see. I think many of them stayed steadfast and loyal to the Lord, but the fact was is that they tolerated those groups. They allowed this false, wicked, divisive teachings to come into their church, and they did not exercise church discipline. They did not... um, Uh, They did not uh, remove them from the church. They did not protect the purity of the doctrine of the word of God. And as a result, they shared in their guilt. And that's why Jesus said next, a correction to them. We see the commendation. We see the concern. But now Jesus says, all right, let's correct this. Look at verse number 16. The first word. Why don't you say it with me there where you're at? Say it with me. Repent. Repent. After all of this, these doctrine of Balaam and doctrine of Nicolaitans, all of this stuff that's in the church, Jesus says one thing. He says, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That's a very corrective statement there. Maybe you remember as a kid, you know, your parents saying, you know, don't make me come down there, right? (laughs) You're at your house and you're fooling around or you didn't do what you're supposed to do. And your mom says, did you clean the bathroom yet? You know, and you're like, oh, she's like, don't make me come down there. And okay, you remember, that's what it sounds like to me. Jesus says here, listen, I know what you're up to. You need to repent or else repent or else there's going to be some judgment that will come. You know, since the Garden of Eden, God has called his people to repent. He has called us to turn away from our sin and turn back to God. Hey, when was the last time you repented of your sin? When was the last time you genuinely, from a heart of love for Christ and of a repentant spirit, turned to him and asked and said, God, would you forgive me for this? You know, for the church in Pergamos, at this point, repentance was their only hope. It was their only hope to save themselves from the chastisement, from the judgment of God. And in our lives as well, repentance is something that is necessary in our lives. I think of 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is my life verse, where it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a verse that personally I claim for myself and for my ministry because it's a promise here. God says if we will repent, then he will heal and he will forgive. But yet if we continue in our sin, If you continue in our rebellion against God and we blend together our faith and our rebellion, God will fight against us. Think about that. God will resist you. God will come against you with the sword of his mouth. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means here that the entire church family was going to face the battle sword of God's word and of judgment. The heretics, of course, for practicing their heresy, the fornicators for their sin, But the rest of the church was also going to face judgment for their toleration of it within the church. Now, here's an interesting thing. There's a clear change of pronouns in this verse where we see it being uh, moving from being individual, talking about individual things, to now talking to generally and what we understand that to be to be the entire church body. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair that, you know, uh, some are, are paying the penalty for 
these other ones. But the fact is, is that they were all responsible for the purity of doctrine. They were all responsible for the church as a whole there. And so God here is bringing judgment to them over this decision unless they repent. You say, would God really judge a local church? Would God really judge a, a, a church family for, the, for this? Listen, you don't have to look very far to find that even today. The truth is, is there are a lot of denominations in our city that I believe are under the judgment of God. You say, well, that, that's kind of hard for you to say. I, I agree. Yes, that's, a, that's a, maybe a strong statement to make. But the reason I make it is because there are a lot of groups in our city and in our country that at one time stood for truth. At one time, they preached the gospel. At one time, they stood for uh, biblical morality and things that were right and very clear in scripture, but they allowed false doctrines to come in. They allowed influencers to come in. They allowed people that took the focus off of Christ and uh, really brought in worldly philosophies And I think it's safe to say they're living in judgment today. And the reason we can say that is because though they may be hanging on, they are a shadow of their former selves. The impact for Christ is negligible at best that these churches are making in their community. They have become nothing more than glorified landlords for other gospel preaching churches. (laughs) And they lost that impact. And it's because I believe they embraced the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and of Balaam. And as a result, God put a judgment on them that they are no longer effective. Maybe God is even resisting as he mentions there. And the truth of the word of God is resisting them and going against them. Well, Jesus closes with an encouragement in verse number 17, where he says, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. He says that after each one of these, he's saying, listen, you got to listen up. Hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, this is interesting here. Notice how it says it is to the one who overcomes. That is a term uh, that is used to describe true believers in Jesus Christ. People who have truly accepted him as their Lord and Savior. That is an overcomer. Those that are born by his spirit, overcome by his sacrifice. And to us, did you notice there what it says? That he gives to us hidden manna. Think about that for a second. He gives us hidden manna. That's weird. And a white stone with a name, a secret name written on it. And you're like, okay, what is, what is happening here? Let's look at this real quickly. Hidden manna. Well, we know what manna was in scripture, right? For six out of seven days, while the children of Israel wandered for 40, days in the wilderness, or 40 years in the wilderness, God gave them this manna. It was out there and they could uh, gather it. They could make it into loaves and it sustained the children of Israel for those 40 years. Here's what we know about manna. It was God's miraculous provision for them miraculous provision. This manna, though, is different. It's hidden. It's not seen. It's concealed. Now, to us, it's symbolic in in a lot of ways, and it's symbolic in this way that it it represents our relationship with Jesus Christ. John chapter 6, verse 30 to 35 talks about this, and you can maybe write that down for later study yourself. But the picture that we see here is of that close Um, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and how in that relationship that we have with him, we find life, we find nourishment. It is a must for our spiritual growth. I think you would agree with me that to be a Christian, you need Jesus. To grow, you need Jesus Christ. You need that close 
personal relationship. It is what sustains you. It's what keeps you going. And, and that's what he's ta- trying to talk about here. He's saying, listen, I, I, I'm giving you this hidden manna, this thing that nobody else sees, but it is a strength. It is a nourishment. It is something that stays with you in the most difficult of times. If you're in the wilderness uh, or not in the wilderness, I'm there with you. And he gives to us this hidden manna. And then it also says that he gives us a white stone with a new name that no one knows. Now, to be honest with you, this is a puzzler. <laughs> this is a puzzler. There's several ideas of what this could be. Some people think it represents, you know, something connected to the city there. Most of the cities in Pergamos, or most of the buildings in Pergamos were built with local uh, stone that was black. So it was very dark stone. And so to identify buildings, they would use white marble to mark those buildings to identify uh, where they were. That could be seen as a picture of, okay, uh, you guys there in Pergamos, it's a dark place, but uh, you're identifiable because of Jesus Christ. There could be that in there. There, of course, could be, um, there's a custom where guests, if you were invited to a feast, basically your ticket to get in was a stone with your name carved on it. And you would turn that over uh, when you got there. And so people knew that you were supposed to be there at the, uh, at the event. Um, Now, we don't really know exactly what he's talking about here for sure. But what we do know is this. This is something special between God and his children. Something special that's given to us, something that is unique between me and God. It is special. It is personal. And what it shows to us is God's unique personal interest in each of us. That God cares about every single one of his children. And he knows us intimately. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, where he says that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. What is Paul saying? He's saying you have no idea what God has prepared for you. That tells us that, again, God is personally invested and interested in each and every one of his children. Man, that gives us such encouragement. That strengthens us in, in, in so many amazing ways. You know, I can't wait to see Jesus face to face when I no longer have to deal with the messiness of this world and its temptations to compromise. But until that day comes, we must listen to the warning here at Pergamos. We must stand strong. We must stand firm. We must cling to the word of God. We must protect our doctrine. We must stay pure. Yes, we live in a sinful place. Yes, we are sinful people. Yes, there is wickedness all around us, but God is still building his church. Hell will not prevail. Satan will not prevail against us. And those of us who are the local, visible representation of Jesus Christ in this city, we must remain strong, church. We must continue on. We must be careful to protect our church, to protect the doctrines of the word of God. And we must be be careful to protect our own walk with Christ so that we are personally walking and personally uh, right with God. At that point, We can walk together in unity and in encouragement and in faith, waiting to see God get the victory in our city and in our lives. You know, church, I wonder today if maybe you personally are struggling a little bit with your walk with the Lord. You say, yeah, pastor, it's not what I think it should be. That's that's not what I really mean. I mean, you personally, you between you and the Savior, you're not quite right with the Lord. Yes, he's forgiven you. Yes, he has, he has uh, paid for your sins. But there's still something between you and the Lord. Maybe you've allowed some of the world's philosophies to come in. You are trying to connect maybe what's going on out there and what you've heard and what you've seen and trying to make it a part of your faith when the fact is it actually doesn't even really, it doesn't work. 
You've strayed away from purity of doctrine in your own life. You've maybe been out trying to, uh, uh, you've, you've been uh, taking in some false teachings maybe or things that you're uh, wondering about and you're just sort of trying to figure it out on your own. You're making decisions on your own in that sense. Scripture tells us here that's the doctrine of Balaam. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that we must be aware of, that infiltration that Satan uses. We must be careful in that. We must search the Scripture. We must know what the Word of God says so that we can make those proper decisions and understand what is true and what is false. Maybe for some of you, you just allowed the world to influence you in a way and you need to get right with the Lord. Can I give to you what Jesus said to that church? Would you repent? Would you get right? If you've allowed some of those things to creep in, worldly influences, things that you know are not of Christ have come in, would you repent of that today? Would you get right with the Lord in that area today? Don't put it off any longer. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.